Okay, so welcome to our third day of this week of celebration of our year of sheltering in place. And we'll be continuing with the idea of some wisdom understanding paired with some heart quality. Um, but as before, as we did yesterday, we'll start with sitting to make sure that we kind of arrive in the middle of our day. So please find a posture that's upright and relaxed, or you can be comfortable for just a short sitting to help us arrive. Maybe starting by feeling the place where you're sitting. So your seat against the cushion or the chair, feeling that support and groundedness. Seeing if you can soften and let go into what's holding you up. Often we need to keep it together or push to keep things going. But for this time of meditation, we're just gonna sit, let ourselves be held and flow along with the mind and the body. So bringing the attention inward to the bodily posture, know that you're sitting at this moment. Body isn't really going anywhere. Doesn't have to do anything. For this time of sitting, we don't need to accomplish anything with our mind either. We don't need to be anybody. We don't need to figure anything out. We don't need to do it right. Just softening any ideas we might have brought in about what should happen or what we need to be or do. Maybe imagining that classic image of the jar with the mud in it and it's been shaken up so the water is cloudy and we just set that on the shelf or on the cushion and the only way for the water to settle is just to wait anything we would try to do to it would just agitate it So we can just sit and let any swirling energy in the body or in the mind just be as it is.
If you find the mind caught up in something from the past or the future, or even about what you're doing today, just noticing that and relaxing back into spaciousness. Maybe even kind attention. Feeling some ease about just sitting, offering ourselves this respite from needing to figure things out. Make them work. As things settle just a bit, even if it's just a bit, feeling how the body is softer, how the mind feels a little more spacious, a little more accepting of the thoughts that are drifting through. Maybe even realizing that these particular thoughts are not the only way to think about whatever situation is coming up. Feeling the flexibility of the mind and the softness of the body, they go together.
Okay. So we talked yesterday about impermanence uh, and particularly kind of the frailty and fragility of the body. And because, you know, we're in the midst of a pandemic as well as um, a period of climate crisis, climate change, uh, political instability, racial injustice, so many things in our material world going on, it's easy to think of the material world as the locus of all of this impermanence and change that's going on. And certainly that occupies a lot of our attention. But um, the Buddha meant for us also to observe the rise and fall and the changing nature of the mind, maybe even especially so. <laughs> uh, he especially wanted us to look at how our thoughts and emotions and views and perceptions are also conditioned and subject to change. You know, the very way that we're um, using our mind, the way it's flowing. These are areas where we so easily get caught up. Does anyone not think that you get caught up in your mind? <laughs> Definitely we do. And when we do, um, it's largely because we have reified some kind of thought or view or opinion or idea about how things need to be. We've made them permanent. We've made them solid. We've made them about me. And uh, there's a lot of suffering there. And we're not seeing at those moments when we're caught up in these things, we're not seeing how even our things in our mind, our mental landscape is conditioned. And because of that, we get in a lot of conflicts. That's actually a lot of the basis of conflict in the world. Now, there was a huge Dharma teaching <laughs> compressed into just a few sentences, right? We get caught up in our mind, we've reified it and made it into a self. They're suffering, and it's the cause of conflict. Spend a lifetime unfolding how that works, but we don't have all that time. So I want to um, just kind of give a top-level understanding of what's being pointed to here, because it's so important, and it actually is a big part of the Buddhist teachings. Um, but I want to focus in first on this word that I used in the um, you know, part of a list earlier, one of the things I said that we have in our mind is views. And this word view, it's, um, it, it, we're not always clear about what that is. Um, in popular, because it has a popular meaning, right? In popular language, a view is an opinion or a perspective of some kind, um, which is good enough. I mean, that's, that's true also in Buddhism, but in, in the Buddhist understanding, um, it is a little different in that a view is actually an orientation that we're bringing to the world. It influences the very way that we take in information. So another word that sometimes used as a view is like a lens that we have. Um, we've put it in front of our eyes and we're using it to look at experience. So if we don't know it's there, then we think that that's just how things are because we're not aware that there's that lens there. If you're aware of it, that's okay. Like I wear glasses, but I know perfectly well that if I take them off, the world looks quite different. Um, and I'm, I actually think they're quite useful. Um, so that's fine, as long as I know that they're there. But um, these views that we have uh, get in front of our eyes and we don't realize that. We think it's just um, how things are. And they're very subtle. Um, 
there and we have many 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 of them so you know just seeing one doesn't doesn't mean that you've seen everything that you're using um, and they have to be used it's not that it's wrong to have views i'm not trying to say that let me frame what i'm saying by it's not wrong to have them the buddha expressed views he used them they're functional in the world but they're very dangerous and so we have to know that they're there so the example i've been using recently um, about a, a common unseen view um, is that we tend to mm, assume that in the West, we assume that the mind is uh, created or an outflow of the physical brain. Um, that's a, that makes sense in Western science is that the brain is what we use to think and perceive. That's where all the sense organs go um, to be interpreted and understood. So of course, the mind and the brain are definitely related. <laughs> I'm not saying they're not. But um, whether they're the same and whether the mind emerges from, that is, is subsistent on or depends on matter, um, that is not actually proven. And that is an assumption. So that would be a view. And it colors things like um, how we see uh, understandings about neuroscience and such. Um, and, you know, maybe it's a reasonable approximation, but I just point out that it has never actually been seen or proven. And, um, you know, the mind and the brain are clearly related. So just as a little um, side pondering, if you think this is intriguing, uh, no other sense organ produces its sense object, right? The eye does not produce vision, the, the things that we look at. It doesn't even produce the light by which we see. The ear does not produce sound or and isn't responsible for the sounds out there. So the brain is certainly what we use in the, to perceive mental things, mental functions, but why would we think it creates them? So for your contemplation. So this, I choose this one because it may not be so emotionally charged. You know, the idea about the mind, the brain is a scientific thing, uh, but um, I'm inviting you then to move this also into the domain of issues that are a little bit more dear to our heart. Uh, where we are also applying views. So if we study our views and perceptions, how we're seeing the world, what we think, think what, what we think is just true about the world, of course, that's just true. Why would that not be true? Um, we will come to realize two things. First of all, most of them revolve around ourself. Um, check sometime how many of your thoughts are related to me or I or myself. It's a lot <laughs> and you know, it's, it's okay. This is the thing that we've created to help us get through the world, to help the body and mind navigate in a world of inputs that we don't totally understand and don't have total control over. Um, that's fine, we're, but we're kind of obsessed with ourselves. And even when we create others, like we think about um, our, our partner or our boss or something, uh, usually those are relationships that are so close that as soon as we think of that person, we've also created a self, you know, the self that we are in relation to that person, that being also comes into being in our mind. So it's not um, quite true that we uh, are not thinking about ourselves when we're thinking about our partner, for example. 
um, we're, we're kind of there in the background also. So this is, this is not like, I'm not saying you need to stop this and every thought should not be about yourself. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying notice. Just notice how popular we are in our personal narrative. We're the hero, we're the always, or the victim, or the villain, or whatever, but we always have a central role. So we'll talk more tomorrow about identification. Um, that's really tomorrow's topic. So the other thing about views and perceptions is that they're very narrow when they're grasped. And so, you know, it's, it's not that we should never have them, but if we're not flexible about them, if we've decided this is how it is, it actually narrows our world quite a lot. And as we start just observing, you know, what it is that we're perceiving, what it is that we're thinking, uh, how it is that we're assuming things to be true, we start to realize how many more options there would be if we didn't have that. Um, just as another sort of domain of examples, you can check when you walk into a room, what do you see in the room and how do you evaluate something new that comes in? That has a lot to do with our unseen views. So for example, if you go into situations, um, some people look for what in that situation will provide them with pleasure. You know, what's going to be good for me here? Um, and it could be a person that they're interested in, they find attractive or interesting, they go talk to that person. Why? Because they're seeking the interest and the pleasure of having an interesting conversation. Or they, um, you know, they're looking for the food. I don't know. It's a lens, right? What is it going to, what's going to be good for me in this room? Uh, another possibility is to have a fear lens, and then it's what's going to be safe for me in this room. It's probably dangerous, but I think it'll be safe if I do that. We don't even consider the things that might not be safe. <laughs> like, whoa, whoa, no, it's not going to do that. But it, it's not so conscious, right? I'm making conscious the subconscious processing that goes on before we make our choice about how to walk across that room and do something. This is a great clue for what your lenses are. So, but we see then the narrowness. Sometimes people are shocked and they realize, I had no idea how much fear is controlling my thoughts and actions and what I'm even willing to see. We can go for decades and not know that. And this practice can start to reveal it. So we start to realize that there's a lot that we're missing by the narrowness of our views. Um, and we'll tend to get into conflict around this if somebody tells us to do something different or someone has a different approach, very different approach, we tend to not like them because they're sort of pointing to what in us you know, is, is narrow and confined. So there's a whole chapter on the, um, in the uh, Sutta Nipata about views. Mostly it's about views and how limiting they are um, called the Atakavaga is the fourth chapter. So I've picked out some stanzas from that, just so you can hear what the Buddha has to say. Uh, mostly this is about how they get us into conflicts and how they're related to desire. As one knows, so one speaks. How could one overcome one's views when led by desire, stuck in what's pleasing and making up ideas of what's correct? In using words, true Brahmins don't make things up follow views, or bind themselves to knowledge. Knowing the many commonplace opinions, they are equanimous, thinking that is what others hold on to. Having given up old contaminants without forming new ones, they neither pursue desires nor get entrenched in doctrines. Free from viewpoints, not clinging to the world, 
wise ones have no self-reproach. They are not an enemy to any doctrine, seen, heard, or thought out, not forming opinions, not shut down, and not desirous. They are sages, wise ones who have laid their burden down. So it's somewhat subtle, um, the Buddha's idea about how to relate to views and opinions and viewpoints. It's not that we reject them or shut down and or say, I don't have any um, connection to that. It, doesn't, it says um, not shut down, but we don't grasp onto them or make them into something that we fight about other people, fight about with other people. We see them clearly as a burden uh, lay them down, don't need to get caught up in them. I very much like the line, wise ones have no self-reproach. So the fruit of this is that we don't judge ourselves or others for that matter, because we just see that views are something conditioned, just like the body is conditioned. We won't judge ourselves when we get sick. It has to be that way. And we don't judge the conditions of people's minds, but stand free of that and make choices in other ways. So that brings us to today's heart quality. What is the heart? What is a heart quality that contrasts or that maybe complements this wise understanding of views? I'm going to say that that's metta, in that metta is a flexibility of mind and heart. It's a wishing well for all beings, regardless of how caught up they are, regardless of how difficult they are, regardless of how wonderful they are. The heart of metta opens, accepts, welcomes beings. It's about going through life without being for and against, not grasping, not pushing away, not wanting things to fit into our fixed views. It's such a life of dukkha when that's all it's about. And it's such a relief when we start to relax and open and let some of that go. When we become willing to be inclusive, soft, willing to meet and connect with all kinds of people, willing to hold everything in our large mind and heart. So metta is very much about inclusiveness and breaking down the barriers between beings, people, allowing many different perspectives. It has to do with respect, with tolerance, with humility. So letting go of fixed views and being willing to see other ways of thinking or feeling, I would say, is a gesture toward the inclusiveness of metta. This is from Ajahn Suchito from his book, Parami. Metta is one of the paramis. When we make the resolution of kindness, not just toward kittens on a nice day, but even toward cockroaches on a bad day, when we include dictators and brutal maniacs, as well as all aspects of ourselves, then we're making metta into a perfection, a vast and transfiguring way of life. The result is a mind that is grounded in wisdom and compassion, and which easily opens to the peace of Nibbana. So we need this frame of mind so much in our world right now. Issues of diversity, of connection across races and classes and gender identities. This is about metta. You don't have to throw out your own perspective. Whatever you are and whatever your cultural background is, that's fine. But we just need to broaden it to include others. 
So metta accepts many views and is willing to shift views when that is useful, willing to change views if needed. So wisdom is what sees through views and knows that they're all limited. And then metta is what helps us live with the wide range of views that there are out there. As uh, Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj said, love says I am everything, wisdom says I am nothing. Between the two, my life flows. So today we've talked about the wisdom of knowing the limitations of views and the conditionality and impermanence of them. And we've talked about the heart quality of metta as an inclusiveness and expansiveness of heart and mind. I think they go together. So with that, we'll have some small groups today to talk a little bit further about this. And I'll give you the question and then I'll, you can reflect on it for a moment while I'm setting up the breakout groups. So the question is what new perspective um, have you had to come to as a result of a year of shelter in place? What view that you'd been holding got kind of disrupted by this? And what new understanding, perhaps grounded in love or wisdom, have you come to um, through seeing such a changed world over the last year? So think about that for a moment. Okay, enjoy. Randy, were you, yeah, okay, good. That worked out. Okay. Randy, that was good. What? Ah. <laughs> oh. Can you turn on okay. the chat for everybody so that he can at least finish his sentence to me? Oh, sure. Why don't you finish? <laughs> No? Okay, well, anyway, we're now back in the big group. Um, I would welcome hearing any comments or questions that emerged from that or thoughts, ideas. Well, I have, I have a question of clarification. Okay. And 
because I have been thinking about it since you um, brought it up. Uh, views again. Um, my question is, if you approach the world through the lens of the Eightfold Path, then I consider that a view. Or if you approach the world from the perspective of um, Jesus Christ is constantly taking care of all my needs, then that is a view. Is that, am I correct? In yeah, that? those would both be views, yeah. And so we can combine those views and have those circulating in our minds. And it seems to me if we occupy ourselves with those kinds of views, we are less likely to get into trouble. Sure. Not all views are created equal. They are in one sense and they aren't in another sense. Let me say it that way. So sure. And there are certain views that, um, I mean, this now gets into what's your aim? You know, what is it that uh, you're trying to do in this life or that you feel is important? And so there, the view of the eight-pole path, for example, that would be um, right view, according to uh, Buddhist, Buddhism. There's a thing called right view. And people say, well, how can you have all these teachings about views not being, you know, they're all conditioned and so forth. But then you say that one of them is right. Well, you have to understand that the word um, sama is actually, uh, doesn't really mean right. It means um, appropriate or it means complete. Um, it's, and it has a special quality. This particular view is one that leads to the destruction of views. Um, that happens to be one, one thing that it does. Views are not non-impactful. You can't hold a view and have it have no consequences. That's part of right view actually is believing things have consequences, but views are consequential. And they do, like you pointed out, that if certain views will make it less likely that you would go through the world harming people, that's true. So we need to check in a case of our views, are we holding any views that are detrimental to our being or to our aim? You know, what is it that we're trying to do? That's why view is a practice. That's why view is one eighth of the path. Um, we have to look at these things and how they're functioning in our lives and, you know, carrying views such as I am stupid and incompetent, which a lot of people carry at a subtle level. It's not actually a very, the consequences of that view are not very good. And so, you know, but we maybe didn't see that that was there. Uh, so there's a, a whole deep practice of looking at how the mind is seeing the world and how we can free that up. And of course, there are views that we don't want to give up, like the view of me and mine. And, and that has a certain function, certain functionality to it, um, but it also has some problems. And so we have to be very clear about when it's functional and when it's problematic, which is getting a little bit into what we'll talk about tomorrow, which is not self and emptiness. So it's, um, this week is evolving. Oh, there's a chat there for Randy. I didn't finish his comment. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, are there, while that's going on, are there further questions or comments from anyone else? 
it was kind of a big, broad prompt. It was a it's big, a big broad prompt, topic. wasn't it? It's a big topic. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're not going to finish a topic like that in one day. But um, I did promise that this week would be full of profound Buddhist teachings. So we're, we're doing our best to touch in. And um, great. Well, I look forward to um, continuing this week. And I hope some of you might join. And uh, have a wonderful day in the meantime. See you tomorrow, same time. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.